Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ellen Trackman here with... Jennifer White. Oh, is that me? Yeah, I win. That's you. Run down. Oh, um, run down the aisle with my arms in the air. Right. Uh, Jen, I have so many important questions to ask you, but today yes. I'm going to focus focus on this really important question that the world apparently debated two years ago and I missed it. But um, oh, okay. here's the question. Does the person flying in the middle seat of an airplane get both armrests? And I can tell you Ooh. the survey answers. Um, but tell, tell me what you I can you tell think. you mine. I What's, say... I, I am a super frequent traveler, so mm-hmm. I, I was before COVID. And, and are you a are you a window person? What are you? I am totally team window all mm-hmm. the way because uh, I really don't like people to climb over me. So <laughs> total, <laughs> totally, one hundred percent. But I am. Oh yeah. What's oh, I would say I'm team window also, but I'm actually team middle seat before ever aisle seat. Cause I cannot handle like being jabbed by like the cart or the people running I into really you. I'm like, hate that. I yeah. way prefer the middle seat to the aisle. <laughs> no okay. Question. So this is really important to you then. Cause you actually have a preference to that leans you towards middle seats sometimes. Yeah. Right. Um, I am absolutely a hundred percent of the belief that the person who is in the middle seat, that just sucks to have to be in the middle seat. So they deserve the armrests. Well, you lose, apparently. Um, apparently, out of this survey of 107,000 votes, Whoa. Uh, 47.1% agreed with you, and 52.9% said no way. So you barely lost. I was going to say, I didn't lose by much. Okay, I mean, there was right. over 50,000 people that agreed with you, essentially. But Okay, I'm not alone. I didn't, like, die on my own hill, right? <laughs> Yeah. So, but, um, so we have a guest who is also a frequent traveler <laughs> and has many stories to tell about it. And in terms of things that don't really matter, right? Like is it's fascinating to think that, I mean, they do matter, but they don't, um, of how people form their families and how you can get to that same destination many different ways. And he is the true example of all those different avenues to having a child. Welcome, Brett Griffin Young to the podcast. Brett, I am so thankful for you to join us. Your story is absolutely fascinating. I'm so excited for you to share it with everyone in this forum. Um, and I know we talked about where to start. You so, I mean, there's so much to your story. <laughs> but how about we just start with you introducing yourself where you are now, and then we'll okay. go a little bit into your background. Sure, not a problem. Well, th- thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I, my where I am right now is uh, I live in um, the city of Nottingham in the United Kingdom, famous for uh, Robin Hood. And I was going to say. His merry men. <laughs> his merry men in tights, apparently. Is there a um, Sherwood Forest? Yes, there is. Yeah, yeah. It's oh, about, 10 wow. miles, about 10 miles from where I live. We take the kids <laughs> there quite regularly. And every year they have a um, a Robin Hood festival, which is actually nice. quite marvelous. Nice. We it will really have to go to it. I'm I, booking it now. I did drive through Nottingham when I was up in, um, when we lived in the UK. So oh, did you? Just for that reason, did yes. <laughs> did you drive through it or did you stop? We just stopped nearby. We actually were going somewhere else. So it just was more of like a, oh, hey, we could say we did this kind of cutesy little okay. thing. We yeah. were eventually heading to Hadrian's Wall, you know, which is neither here nor there. Right. We yeah. were going north. So, yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I live in Nottingham. I, I live here with my husband and three kids. 
Um, we have been here for eight and a half years in Nottingham. Prior to that, we lived about 36 miles south in a city called Leicester. You may have driven past Leicester as well. Um, yes. Leicester's, Leicester is famous for the king in the car park. You might have heard about Richard III. Yes. They found him buried in the car park. Well, that was, that was, that was, that was when we lived there, actually, is when they found his it? body. Yeah. That wow. was absolutely fascinating. We loved it. Yeah. We really, the last of the Plantagenet kings, and they found him um, in the first trench they dug to, yeah. to see if they could find the location of the original cathedral, and they dug up Richard III. It was really fascinating. Yes. Anyway, uh, so <laughs> we lived in Leicester for, gosh, I think 13 years. Um, prior to that, I, I lived in Oxford, which is where my mum and all her family are from. And where did you grow up? Yeah. I feel like that's a very interesting story. You see, you say you think it's really interesting to me. It was just where I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is, and Ellen is, I mean, I definitely has, she sent me some pieces of your story and things like that, but it's really important about shaping you and your life and your worldview. Oh, so completely. it's interesting to us. I mean, to, to you, it may not be, but to the rest of us, it is. Okay. So and if, if it makes you feel better, then? we'll tell you that we grew up in a very interesting town to some people, you know, it's just where we grew up, but we grew up in um, Los Alamos, New Mexico, where they built the atomic bomb. So it was like standard oh. um, curriculum to learn about the Manhattan Project and World War II. Right. And so, and so you know, everyone has some interesting like stuff, right? <laughs> but everybody else, they think it's really strange. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Now that is pretty cool. <laughs> um, I, I was born in Africa. Uh, I was born in a country at that point called Rhodesia. Um, it is now known as Zimbabwe. Once it gained independence, they changed the name. Um, so I was I was born in Africa to uh, a British mother and a father of Spanish descent. And I say of Spanish descent because um, his parents were Spanish. His mother escaped the um, Franco regime in the in the you know the after the First World War, um, and they were anglicized, given new identities, and hidden around the world. And she was one of those people. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I was born in Rhodesia and I was raised on a farm and it was a very idyllic life until the war started becoming quite serious. The, the war for independence, there was a lot of terrorist activity. And, you know, you looking back at it, history is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because at the time there was this sentiment of, oh, they were wrong, we're right. Now, looking back at it, when you, when you look at what Nelson Mandela did, um, you know, he was in prison for terrorist acts and he went on to become president of, of South Africa. So, you know, history is a fascinating thing. So anyway, I, I lived in, in Rhodesia and we were then physically removed. We were given 24 hours to leave by the uh, armed forces there. And how old were you when you were given 24 hours to uproot your entire life and what you knew? I was young. I was young, and but young enough to know what was, I mean, old enough to know what was going on. Um, to, to, if you ask me my exact age, I can't actually remember the no, year no, that okay. it happened. <laughs> I must have been about four or five, maybe six. Um, and, you know, I remember the instance and I remember the whole journey um, to the border where we then had to walk across the border and so on. Um, it, it, it was it was for me, the, the more impactful thing was the, the border was with South Africa and we ended up in South Africa because my father actually held South African citizenship at that point um, because it was it was easy for us to get to and we had 24 hours to get out. I arrived at the peak of apartheid as a sort of young child who had 
burgeoning feelings towards other young boys. <laughs> My parents were Jehovah's Witnesses, um, which which really was the cherry on the cake. Um, you know, I, it was it was hard. It was very hard in South Africa. I hated it. I truly did. I never felt like I belonged. I always felt that I actually belonged in England. I, I think my British heritage was strong. Um, I never, I never felt like I fitted in anywhere. And, and through school, it was really tough because I was a very English child in a very Afrikaans area, which is, it, Afrikaans is a dialect of Dutch. It's the sort of spoken language by most white South Africans. And I did not know the language. I didn't agree with the politics, although we were not allowed to be involved with politics as Jehovah's Witnesses. I, I certainly had an opinion on things. Um, so by the time I reached 15, I knew for certain that I was gay. I knew what that would mean for me coming out. Um, it wasn't. And that was going to be my next question. Was can't you? I assume could not come out at that point. You just oh, had to keep absolutely this to yourself. Not. Okay. Uh, I lived a double life. And what I say I lived a double life. I wasn't doing anything on the homosexual side of things, but I kept it very secret. Um, right. and, and certainly within my mind, I had another life. Um, and I think a lot of gay people will say that, you know, especially ones who, who are around my age growing up. Um, for the longest time, you learn to hide. You, you learn to try and blend in as best you can. Um, and I think that's probably why there's so many gays in the acting world. I think we have a lot of experience in pretending to be somebody else. I do. I really do. It's a fair assessment. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, at the age of 15, I had a secret boyfriend. Um, he was another young man in our congregation, Jehovah's Witness congregation. And we had been having relations as, you know, sort of 15-year-old Am I allowed to say the word horny? Sure. <laughs> horny boys do. Um, <laughs> you can say whatever you want on our podcast. <laughs> cool. So, um, yeah. So, you know, I was a horny 15-year-old and there was a release and it was secret and it was fun and it was exciting. And I think what made it even more exciting was it was someone I'd fancied for years and never thought I'd ever have a chance. Um, and in fact, my older sister fancied him terribly. And I remember thinking to myself, well, ha, I got him. But I can't. <laughs> I can't tell you this. <laughs> um, I'm not allowed to say anything. So uh, we, we had this relationship going on and then we got found out. And we got found out because I panicked, really. Um, my parents were called in after one of the meetings. We used to go to five meetings a week. God, it was hard work. Um, and it was one of the Thursday night meetings. I remember the evening so clearly. They got called into a little back room, the back of the congregation, the, the church, for want of a better term. Um, and the elders were having a conversation with them. I could see them being very upset through the window. And my sisters and I are looking at each other, all of us thinking, Shit, which one of us is in trouble? Um, and, <laughs> but you um, didn't know I, you I, at that point. I had a very strong feeling it was no. me. And we traveled home. My mother, I remember, cried the whole way. My father just looked dead ahead. He didn't speak. We got home and he followed me into my bedroom and that was when I knew it was me. What I didn't know was that it was just a rumor that they had heard that I might be a homosexual. <laughs> um, instead of me going, so what's up, dad? I went, I've been sleeping with him and it's been going on for the length of time and so on and so on. I confessed everything. Um, oh, wow. And it was the start of the end for me in many ways because it certainly was the end for my father. That was when he stopped attending the, the meetings. He never attended another meeting after that. 
Oh, wow. um, he, he lost his, his faith. But he never told me that till much later on, that that was actually the reason why he stopped attending. Um, wow. He still pushed for us to go. He still encouraged us to become better Jehovah's Witnesses and stuff, which was an interesting slant, really. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was it, there was a massive investigation into what happened. Um, it, I was assigned to two of the elders. Um, they work as a sort of good cop, bad cop approach. Um, but the hardest part really was my father had to be present for all of the conversations. And they were asking really in-depth, wow. gruesome sexual questions uh, and i have no doubt one of them in particular was getting off over this um oh, and i remember them asking me if i'd certain about certain sexual practices where i sat there going huh didn't even know you could do that thank you <laughs> oh you do that oh that sounds hot um but, but actually it was a, it was a very very traumatic time for me it was very hard it went on for several months um, they did a very thorough investigation and then they started bringing young brothers in from the congregation and the surrounding congregations to ask them questions about whether I'd ever made any advances on them. Um, so there was no, there was no confidentiality whatsoever. They, they knew everything because they were being brought in and asked these questions. So they knew what was going on. And that was my reputation pretty much destroyed, um, and I was 15 years old. So I I went through a really bad patch for a good month or so after all of that. They decided to um, publicly reprove me is what they called it. Even though I was not a baptized Jehovah's Witness, they decided they were going to make an announcement about me. So it's, it's almost like a public telling off, a, a, wow. a um, admonishment from the, the podium That's sort terrible. of thing. It, it was awful. And I remember going and sitting there and thinking, because they told me I had to be present for the announcement. Um, it, it's all part of the humiliation, I'm sure. And the one of the elders got up there and said that the matter involving me had been dealt with and that I continue to serve as a as a unbaptized Jehovah's Witness. And I thought, well, that's wow. not too terrible. Hmm. Not too terrible. Then the second elder got up and gave a talk about how God's spirit had left the congregation because a certain young boy in the congregation had been involved in homosexual activity. <laughs> oh my God. Oh. And, yeah. And you yeah. really different approach. You did, yeah. You didn't need to be a rocket scientist to sort of connect the dots really. Um, so about my reputation at that point, everybody knew that I had engaged in homosexual activity. The really fascinating thing was the guy, I can say his name. He's actually passed away. Derek. Um, Derek was two years older than me. So he would have been 17 at the time. His dad was an elder. And absolutely nothing happened to him. Nothing. Oh. Yeah. Wow. In fact, I was told that I led him astray, which at the time I accepted as part of what had gone on. You know, I thought, gosh, you know, I'm this terrible person, aren't I? I'm, I'm, I have these homosexual feelings. I've led astray an elder's son. Uh, you know, he's innocent. I've made him, I've turned him gay. That's how I felt. Oh. So I went through a really bad patch for a month or so where I actually very seriously con contemplated suicide because I just felt so much shame and embarrassment about the whole thing. I, I remember the, 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 the sickening feeling in the pit of my stomach of being so ashamed of what people thought of me. And every time I walked into the congregation after that, I, I could feel eyes burning into me. And it was very hard for me then to make or, or maintain any sort of friendships from that point onwards because all of the parents were worried I would try and seduce their sons. Right. Um, and, and that's a lot to bear for a 15-year-old. Yeah. 
so I thought to myself, I've got one of two choices here. I can either, you know, end this <laughs> in the worst possible way, or I can throw myself whole souled into the religion and show them that I'm not gay. And this was just a silly phase I was passing through. And that's what I chose to do. And I became that too. <laughs> yeah, that was that's hard. horrible too. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, no, it wasn't a great religion to be involved in. It was, in fact, a bloody awful religion to be involved in. I, I became very, very active in the preaching work and going out in the door-to-door work. And that is one of the ways they, they like to sort of see um, your uh, repentance, really. That's the most important work you can do is spread the good news, right? Um, so I did that, and I worked very hard. And by the age of just short of 17, I was actually baptized. Um, which you, you, the mark against your name is there for about a year. And then they allow you to, they, they lift restrictions on you. So they were things like all the other young brothers in the congregation could hold the microphones and the poles and walk around, you know, holding the microphones, like microphone duty during the meeting and there's a question and answer. Those were called privileges and they would withhold those. You couldn't do those for a year. Um, so I worked very hard towards earning all of my privileges back and I actually surprisingly got accepted into the headquarters of the Jehovah's Witnesses, which is what's known as Bethel. Um, at the age of 19, I'd been a full-time missionary from 17. I dropped out of high school. Um, I, I never finished high school. I never went to college. I never got a degree. Um, all of that was frowned upon by the Jehovah's Witnesses because the end is so close. And the end is any day now. Why would you bother going and getting a secular education and Wow. risking being tempted by Satan's evil forces in the world. Um, so the encouragement is to just go and preach, do nothing but that, right? Because any day now, and I've been hearing this for 40 something years of my life, any day now the world's <laughs> going to end. Um, so I, I was accepted into the headquarters, which is quite unusual for somebody who had engaged in homosexual activity in the past. Right, because who has actually, that mark in your file, well, basically? It, there is a mark in my file. And not only that, you're sharing a room with other young brothers because you, you right. bunk up. Um, but they, they felt I was clearly not a homosexual anymore. I had deadened those bodily feelings, as the Bible says. Um, and I was actually a very good Jehovah's Witness. Very, very good. Um, I, I never actually, no. I never broke any of the, the rules. I always was very respectful of what the teachings were. And I truly believed that it was the truth and it was my path to everlasting life on a paradise earth. That's the dream oh. I'd been sold. Well, we know you have a husband. It, so when did things change? <laughs> <laughs> so things changed when actually I uh, left Bethel. I, I saw a lot of hypocrisy while I was there. And I was house sitting for a family in the city of Johannesburg in South Africa. And they had a hot tub and a wine cellar. Um, and I'm not sure if you <laughs> ladies are familiar with I was just going to say a combination of alcohol and hot tub can lead to certain things, right? And I must have been about 22 at this point. Now, bear in mind, I'd had absolutely no sexual contact whatsoever since I was 15. Um, and that included, you know, masturbation was frowned upon. So not even that was happening. Sure. I had a young brother come back after one of the meetings to the house and we got in the hot tub and we were laughing and chatting and we're drinking wine. And one thing led to another and I crossed that line. And I knew then that when this comes out, and it would come out at some point, it would be the end for me, as in I would be disfellowshipped, which means you are cut off. You're, you may not speak to your family, um, your friends. They, I still have aunts and uncles who will walk past me in the mall 
and treat me as though I am dead. They won't even acknowledge wow. my existence. Wow. They've never met my children. Wow. Um, it's really quite interesting. My husband can't get his head around it. So I, I actually took the coward's way out, <laughs> which was actually the smartest way of doing it, really. I packed up my bags and I moved countries and I moved to England because I just thought I, I have to now just almost disappear and start a new life for myself and, and then decide how I deal with the future, which is precisely what I did. So I moved to England and I arrived with very little, um, but all I knew was I had quite a lot of family in Oxford um, that were my mother's family who were not Jehovah's Witnesses. So that was a, um, a plus for me because I could, <laughs> yes, yeah, it helped, it helped no end. Um, ended up in Oxford. I worked in a hotel as most sort of uh, African-Australian kids that come to the UK do work in a hotel or in a bar. I worked in a hotel um, and I moved up through the ranks quite quickly from sort of barman waiter to assistant manager of this beautiful little hotel in Oxford. One of the women that used to come and stay on a regular basis, uh, Jane Wright Watson, she was amazing. Um, she had started a company in Oxford and she said I should come work for her. And I was recruited. And on my first day, I met Joita Mukherjee. Now, Joita Mukherjee is a British Asian, so her parents are Indian immigrants to the UK. Um, and Joita was absolutely enthralled to meet me because, A, I was from Southern Africa, from South Africa, and I wasn't racist. Um, and B, I was gay, and she didn't know any gay people at that point. But what she did know was that she had left a certain gentleman at university doing a medical degree called Matthew, who she thought might be gay. And all I heard about for three years was her friend's friend, Matthew, who might be gay. <laughs> so one day I was on, in a one-to-one -one with my boss um, and she came bursting into the office and she could barely talk with excitement because her friend Sanchita had phoned her to tell her that Matthew had just said that he was gay. <laughs> well, then. <laughs> I know. This, this, would have been, this would have been 2000. She was absolutely hell-bent on us meeting, right? And she arranged this dinner in February of 20. 2001 um and i met matthew and i want to say it was love on love at first sight and mm. in many ways i think it was um <laughs> I, I just remember he was very coy and shy and very charming and he looked very much like colin firth and i was sold um <laughs> <laughs> and we, we we dated quite soon after that we arranged to get together and have a date he lived in the city of leicester because that's where he had studied medicine and he had become a doctor and he was now practicing medicine in leicester but he was a very junior doctor um so i used to travel up from oxford to leicester which is about an hour and a half two hour drive and i used to come up after work stay over drive back the next morning and after a few weeks of doing this few months of doing this rather we so i said well why don't i just move to leicester because i can work from home um why am i doing this and i did yeah. And here we are, 20-something years later, and three kids, um, all down so, to Joita, who, who reminds us, sorry, every year, Joita uh, reminds us how she is responsible for our happiness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and do you want to say a her. thank you? Do you want to do a shout-out? <laughs> I would love to do a shout-out to Joita. She's one of the most amazing people we've, we've ever known, and we are very good friends to this day. Uh, she always fights with us because we quite regularly end up in London and we don't see her. But London's such a huge oh. city that yeah. you know, we've got kids and so on. But yeah, um, a big shout out to Joyita for, for that. Oh, I love it. Um, so, so how did yeah. the kids, like I say, we got used to the kids now. <laughs> <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> 
So about six or seven years into our relationship, uh, maybe a little earlier than that, Matt started talking about kids. And I was very much like, I oh. don't think I want children. Mm. You know, I really don't think I do. Um, why would I want to do that? He's a doctor. I, at this point, was working for Barclays Bank, and I was working in corporate bank, and we had a really good disposable income, and we had fabulous holidays. And every time he had an exam coming up, which was regular when he was a junior doctor, I'd do the whole phone my friend in Canada and say, should we go to New York and go shopping? Or should we go to the Dominican Republic for a week? Because I had money to do that. And why would I want to have kids and lose all that? Anyway, Matt stuck to his guns. And I'll never forget the same friend that I used to travel to, the Canadian friend, was visiting for my birthday in 2008. And she said to me, when are you guys going to be dads? We were walking up the tent. We were very hungover. We'd, we'd been drinking on a school night. And it was a Friday. And she said, when are you going to be dads? And I laughed. I said, yeah, 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 one day. And she said to me, no, seriously, TikTok, TikTok, you're not getting any younger. And my initial thought was, oh, my God, you bitch, how dare you? But <laughs> it, it Everyone gets it. it. Kick-started. Oh, yeah. It definitely kick-started something in me because it's something like I thought, actually, she's absolutely right. This is the point in our lives where it's do or die. We either do this now or we never do it. Um, so we opened that conversation up and we started talking about children. And we looked at adoption to start with. Uh, gays had been allowed to adopt in the UK, I think, from about 2006. This was like two years later. But we dismissed adoption early on because it just – there weren't many children available to the gay couples. What, what, they, what was happening was, the, as one of the social workers actually said to us, was um, they, they tend to offer the severely disabled special needs children to the gay couples because they'll take anything. And – I had to be very honest with myself. And, and I, I said to Matt, if we're going to do this, I want to be a parent, not a carer. Uh, I'm, you know, I had to, I really had to be honest about m what I could or couldn't cope with. And I always said, if a child was born to me with a severe disability, I would embrace that and I would get on with that. But would I choose mm -hmm. to take that on? I simply wouldn't. It's just not in me. I have many friends who have adopted you know, fetal alcohol syndrome, children, things like that, who it's it's their life and their and it's their existence. And I, I admire them and I love them for it, but it's not me. And I have to be honest about that, you know. Um, so we looked at adoption, dismissed that, and then turned to surrogacy. Now, in 2000, 2008, surrogacy was in its infancy in Europe. There weren't many people doing it. So th the information out there was a little a little thin, really. And there was certainly no references. There was no other gay dads we could talk to because they just weren't. There was one of the couple who were all over the media, who were super millionaires, who had had twins and then had another one. And they were constantly in the papers and stuff, but they weren't reachable yeah. to us at that point. We, right. I did, I did you, go on you to You weren't a super millionaire. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. No, we weren't super millionaires. And, and they actually put us off surrogacy a bit because their behavior around it was quite nasty. I didn't mm. like it. Um, it was uncomfortable, shall we say. So we looked at India as an option for surrogacy because that was available back then. We looked at the Ukraine. Again, um, back in 2008, Ukraine, they, they, you couldn't do it as a gay married couple, um, but you could do it as a single person sort of thing, mm. and just not say anything about being gay and all that sort of nonsense, which put us off, really. Um, right. And then we turned to the U.S., and we spoke to a few agencies, and Circle uh, was one of the ones that came back to us and really, I think, just really impressed us in the 
A, the professionalism, and B, the fact that there wasn't a pitch to sell us a baby. It was, you know, whoa, 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 slow down on your on on, on saying, I want to have a child. Mm-hmm. We, we want to know a bit more about you guys to mm. see if you're right for us because we're not going to work with everybody. And actually that resonated with us. And the other thing that resonated with us was the importance they put on the relationship with the surrogate and how the surrogate comes first. And that, this, you know, the surrogate and the baby are, are more important in many ways than us. And again, I think that really resonated with us because we thought, well, yes, we want we want a woman who's well cared for, who's looked after, mm-hmm. who, you know, the right person for us, really. And the whole idea of being able to have a relationship with her and, and, and know what's going on and pick up the phone and say, how are you feeling? Again, was really important to us. Um, we don't mess around. <laughs> if we want to buy a car, we go down and we choose a car, we buy it. Uh, we met with Circle, and on the Tuesday, I think it was, um, was actually with uh, John Weltman and Ron, who now runs Men Having Babies. He used to work for Circle back then. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we sent the email in the car on the way home to say, we'd like to join your program, please. <laughs> and nice. we signed up the next morning. And then I had a little mini meltdown because I had this little moment I wired the money across and then thought hold on a second we just met two dodgy men in a hotel room in London uh, and we just I'm sure they'll love to hear that <laughs> dodgy men <laughs> we handed over our life savings and it was for two men we literally had a two-hour conversation with um, and yes there was a website but again I think that whole not being able to speak to somebody properly who'd done it um, made it hard you know, so I said to Matt, that's it. That's it. We were actually going to visit our friends in Canada, the one that keeps coming up. Um, and I said to him, right, we're hiring a car. We drive into Boston because I need to go and have a look at the bricks and mortar. I need to yeah, see the building. This is real. So, yeah. So we did that. And actually what we didn't realize, because we, we didn't have smartphones back then. So you still had to travel everywhere with a laptop and <laughs> log in and stuff. Um, we'd received an email en route to say they had found a potential surrogate for us. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So when we arrived to visit Circle in Boston, we, we had an appointment to the office and um, our program manager, who's a social worker, um, said, uh, so what do you guys think? And we were a bit like, think of what? And she said, of, of Norma. And we said, well, who's Norma? And she said, oh, my God, have you not checked your emails? And we were like, no, no, we've been on the road. I mean, you know, oh, so you didn't now you just, you just refresh your, pho- refresh your phone, don't you? Back then, in the olden days, as my children call it. Uh, <laughs> My son actually asked me if I had electricity when I was a teenager <laughs> the other day. Um, yes, yeah, but the so dinosaurs we, 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 were always stealing it. Uh, they, well, no. they were, yes. Well, the, the tyrannosaurus <laughs> kept knocking over the, the poles. That's why it kept going out. Um, anyway, we, we heard about Norma, and we read about Norma, and we thought, wow, she sounds fabulous. So we actually spoke to her on the 4th of July, she was on her way to her 4th of July barbecue and we spoke to her for the first time um, and decided we wanted to work together. So we matched with Norma and we were working with uh, CT Fertility, Dr. Doyle. Mm-hmm. And we had unsuccessful uh, retrievals, unsuccessful transfers. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was a bit of a shit show. There's no other way to describe it. Um, I'm not surprised they don't exist anymore. Oh. And... After spending almost $80,000 with them, there was no fixed fees in those days. There was no guaranteed baby programs. There was none of that. Um, we were financially pretty much on our knees, really. You know, I think wow. we had enough money for one more transfer and um, 
Matt and I had that conversation, sort of saying, do we do that or do we pause everything, lose Norma? From a financial perspective, we had enough money for one more go. And we had the conversation, do we put everything on hold, risk losing Norma because, you know, she wants to get going and she'll probably rematch with somebody else? Or do we use what we've got left for another go? And we were in this lengthy, in-depth conversations around how we proceed from here. Um, when, when Norma approached us and said, you know, I really love you guys. I really want to work with you still. Um, how about you just try and get me pregnant? Cause I've been an egg donor in the past. I'm perfectly comfortable with my genetics out there. Oh, um, wow. and, and we thought, gosh, okay, well, there's, that's an offer. Wow. Right. So we approached circle, obviously traditional surrogacy now known as genetic surrogacy again, was on the way out. It was all gestational surrogacy, really. Uh, right. We approached John at Circle and said, look, this is the offer on the table. And John's two boys, who are both now in there, I think they're in their early 30s now, um, both of them were traditional babies because when he did yeah. his children, there was no IVF for gay men. Um, so he was totally on board. So he just redrafted a contract with Norma, which was based on a traditional surrogacy journey and so on. And we scheduled a attempt in April. So it was a home insemination in the April of 2009. And we traveled out to Denver, Colorado. It was the most spectacularly beautiful. Woo, woo, Denver. Time Yay, of year. Denver. <laughs> it, it's, I mean, Denver is, I actually came down to um, Santa Fe. Oh, uh, yeah, one of, that's actually near our hometown where we grew yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Anyway, got to, got to Denver and it was such a beautiful time of year because it, it, it's that whole, you can wake up in the morning, it's blue skies. An hour later, there's a blizzard. Three <laughs> hours later, it's blue skies again, but everything's covered in that white powdered snow. It's just beautiful. Um, and we started home insemination. So we spent $90 on a Amazon home insems kit, which is a series of sterile <laughs> cups and some syringes. Wow. And we, we took it in turns, night on, night off, night on, night off. Um, I know it was hilarious, leaving a syringe on the bedside table and saying, good night, and heading back to our hotel. And did you choose <laughs> who was genetically related, or were you guys switching? How were well, you handling that? We were switching. We were taking mm. turns with the insemination. So Matt went first, then I went second, he went third, I went fourth, like that, night on, night off. Um, we got pregnant, first attempt. Wow. And Sebastian was born on New Year's Eve 2009. So it, it was a real magical incredible experience having gone through a lot to get to that point you know emotionally financially everything to suddenly go wow you know we, we have a we have a child on the way um we didn't know who the biological father was because we had taken turns so we really were not sure um but we were pretty certain when we came over for the 20-week scan we did one of those 3d imaging scans and i i turned to matthew and was like that's your baby <laughs> It's just such an image of Based on the 3D scan, that is hilarious. Based, wow. Oh, his cheeks, his chin, everything was Matthew. Absolutely Matthew. Um, and Sebastian was born. We were there for the birth. I cut the umbilical cord. We watched him being born. It was just oh. wonderful. He was 17, 17 days old when we returned to the UK. Um, we got to Heathrow Airport and we had the gayest gay, gayest gay, 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 gay. Gay, but so gay. Immigration official. So I'm literally <laughs> high fiving my husband, going, "We've got the gayest, gay, 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 gayest gay." Right? <laughs> Camp as Christmas calls us over. We put our passports down. 
two British passports and a US passport. And he uses his pen and he flicks the American passport back towards us a bit. And he goes, what's this? And I said to him, it's a passport. He goes, I know that, but what is it? I said, well, it's, it's a US passport. I mean, what do you mean? What is it? Pick it up and read it. Mm-hmm. I didn't say that, but that's what I'm thinking. He says to me, well, what, whose is it? I said, well, it's the baby's. He said, well, what is he doing here? I said, well, he's coming home. He's our child. And he immediately sort of puffed his little chest out and said, well, as you've declared, this child is intending to remain in the United Kingdom for an indefinite period of time, and he is not an EU citizen. I thought to myself, many years later, so this is why we've got Brexit, because of people like this. No. Um, <laughs> he uh, detained Sebastian for three hours, and oh, um, we, had to, we had to wait, um, uh, you know, watching all these people coming through, getting their passports stamped and sorted and going home and we just sat there after a 10 hour flight from denver with a newborn baby first time parents etc etc um and he came out with a form that said there were concerns that he would seek employment or that he would try and claim <laughs> benefits from the benefit system yeah and i looked at him incredulously saying he he's 17 days old he's he's quite <laughs> some time off employment right um, we knew he was British. We knew he would get a British passport. We just didn't bother to do it in the U.S. We just came right. home. It's all changed now. It's very easy for, for Brits to do surrogacy in the U.S. There's a parental order process. And it's no problem. We've just had another baby last year, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but back then, like I say, surrogacy was in its infancy. And they didn't understand it. They didn't want to understand it. To them, it was, there be dragons. You know, don't go there. Um, right. After three hours, he changed his tune when I... Lost my shit. And that's the only way to explain it. We, oh. we were sat with our, we were sat to the side with our backs to the sort of non-EU passport queues, right? And this very nice lady who kept bringing us cups of tea and everything, one of the immigration officials came over with a cup of tea for us and said, um, oh, she says, it's such a shame you didn't come to me because I would have just stamped you through. <laughs> and that was when I lost my shirt because I, right. I, I then I then said to her, right, so this has got nothing to do with the safety of the UK. It's you know safety of the economy of the That's UK from who this, you got, from who this, you know. it's, it's who you get on the day. Yeah. And I think she immediately regretted and realized her mistake. Um mm-hmm. and I just started really getting rather loud and vocal about this, and he came scuttling out with Sebastian's passport, with a six-month stamp in it saying, please just get his British passport within six months. Um, That was a Sunday morning. We had his passport by the following Friday. Wow. Wow. Um, So it was all unnecessary and all nonsense. I've been sat in that naughty chair, by the way, in customs. It's horrible. <laughs> we're not with a baby, though. Yeah. Oh, well, we were, we were detained last year coming into the U.S. because the lady in, in Dallas, Texas, told us that having a baby born through surrogacy is not a valid reason to travel during the pandemic. Instead, wow. instead, we should just leave it in a nursery until the oh. pandemic ends. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, so we were sent into a little side room for a secondary interview, which never happened. It never happened. The guy came and got our passwords, looked at them, walked over and gave them to us and said, I'm so sorry. This really shouldn't have happened. Please enjoy your stay in the United States. <laughs> oh, um, right. So let's move on. Next child, Georgiana, my daughter. So we had Next. Sebastian and it was wonderful. Um, I really enjoyed the first two years of, of, of having a child. He was my little buddy. He still is my buddy. We go everywhere together. I asked him what he wants for Christmas. His birthday is New Year's Eve, so it's usually Christmas birthday now. He's got a bit older. We get him a big ticket item. And all he wants for Christmas and his birthday this year is for me to take him to New York to see the Book of Mormon. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That's a big ticket item. I know. And my, I know, I know. And my husband's like, the problem is because it's you, Brett, we know this will happen. I'm like, yep, 
yeah, of course. That's what he's asked for. That's what he's got. You know, my daughter will spend the same amount of money in the American doll st- girl doll store. So, you know, there you go. Of course. Um, on, on, on a few handfuls of items, just, just a doll and a few clothes, and she's dropped a grand. Right. It's madness in that shop. Anyway, we started talking about a sibling for Sebastian when he was around about 18 months old. And Norma said, well, let's do round two. And so we did. We started. And after 10 attempts, there was no child. Oh, wow. And it was expensive. We, I was flying out to Denver every 28 days, roughly, over ovulation. We were doing home inseminations. We had two IUIs in Denver. Neither one of those worked. We achieved a pregnancy both times, but they both failed. Um, oh. For whatever reason, it just didn't happen. And after 10 attempts and a lot of money spent and a lot of emotional investment, we decided to draw a line underneath that. And I said to Matt, well, you know, should we just wait and save up and do another surrogacy journey? Or, you know, what should we do? And he said, well, we could do that in the future, but he wouldn't mind relooking at adoption. And I said, okay, cool, let's let's do that. So we approached an adoption agency, um, actually based here in Nottingham, even though we were living in Leicester, because we, we were in the process of moving to Nottingham. Um, so we started the adoption process in Nottingham while we lived in Leicester, and they were happy to do that because they knew we were moving into this county. We have counties like you have states sort of thing, um, yeah. as are a lot smaller than the states. Uh, we had a wonderful social worker who actually, we sailed through the, the, the home study. And a lot of that was because we had a little boy still in diapers who, you know, that whole, can you be a parent? How would you, how would you behave if the child throws a tantrum over a lollipop in the supermarket? Well, okay, I can talk you through what happened yesterday. <laughs> Shall I film it for you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, I'll film it for you. Exactly. Right. Um, so we kind of, we kind of sailed through that and we found ourselves in front of the adoption panel. Just before this though, while we were in the process of adopting the child, selling our house, moving to Nottingham, my mother contacted me. She still lived in, in Africa. She contacted me and said that, um, she had found a lump in her breast and that it was cancer. Um, and she actually had found the lump, the lump a couple of years ago and ignored it. And the cancer was pretty much everywhere. That was around about April time. She passed away on the 16th of August that year. I managed to go out and see her just be like literally three weeks before she died. I got to see her and say goodbye. Um, it was, it was very difficult. And actually we were moving house, adopting a child. And I was dealing with the death of my mother all in the space of about four months. I remember coming back and saying to Matt, all we need to do now is a divorce. And we've ticked all the boxes <laughs> of the life events in one year. Um, so my mother passed away. We, we were approved as adopters on the 1st of August. She passed away on the 16th of August, so a couple of weeks later. Um, and at the meeting where we were told we'd been approved as adopters, our social worker handed us a file, which was my daughter, Georgiana, and she said, what do you think of this child? And at that point, she was six months old. She came to live with us when she was nine months old. She's now going to be nine in January. Um, so it was, it was all very smooth, very quick, very easy. And I think given what we'd been through previously with the first the gestational surrogacy failures and then the sibling failures, we kind of braced ourselves for an absolutely terrifying adoption journey. And it was a breeze. It was, look, it was, I shouldn't say it was a breeze. It was tough. There were, you know, it's mm-hmm. compared to the surrogacy though, that wasn't working. It, it was right. great. Um, right. 
And yeah, my daughter is incredible. She, the, the astonishing thing is she looks so much like her big brother. It's ridiculous. Everybody just That's assumed. Yeah. yeah, everybody just assumed. Yeah. Um, so she fitted right in immediately. I mean, she's a complete monster now. She really is. <laughs> uh, I think the, the only sort of, the only, uh, oh my God moment I had was when they handed me her file. It had DOB for date of birth across the top and it was the 4th of January, 2012. And no, I lie, 2013. Sorry, God, I just aged my daughter a year there, 2013. Um, <laughs> and, and all I thought was Sebastian's birthday is New Year's Eve. So we have birthday, we have Christmas and two birthdays in the space of 11 days. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's, it, Christmas time is tough for us. (laughs) It's like we start talking about remortgaging the house. That's September time. Get ready. (laughs) Right. Every year. Um, Yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, Okay. So child three then we got to know the date of birth for uh, child three. So child three's date of birth was last July. uh, 28th of July. Yes. Yes. We actually were. Yeah, I got a breather for sure. Yeah, so yeah, end of July. Um, so child three, 2016, we celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary. We'd been married for 10 years in 2016, and we we had this huge party. It was absolutely wonderful. We invited all our family and friends, and it was really, really nice. And my aunt, who I was very close to, um, my dad's baby sister, uh, she's eight years older than me. Um, she was at the party and been talking about a third. And my husband was pushing back saying, we're done. We've got two kids. And I was saying, uh, we're not done. Which is a funny turnabout when you, from where you started, right? (laughs) Because I am the one that has become so much more passionate about children. I am the one that is more, um, hands-on in many ways. Not, Not that my husband isn't, but I'm definitely, if you wanted to be stereotypical, I'm the, I'm the mother in the relationship. So we were talking about number three. He was pushing back saying, no, 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 we're not having another child. And I actually felt a little, a little, I was hurt by it because actually I love my children to pieces, but there was one thing we always agreed on from the very beginning. And that was that we would both be biological dads and, and I was not yet. And that door was closed quite firmly in my face for quite some time. A good friend who lives in California, who is involved in the surrogacy world in, in a way, um, approached me and said, uh, would I be willing to be a sperm donor for her? And I said, hell yeah. And I thought, because this is actually my opportunity to not be, I won't be a biological dad because I won't be the dad, but, you know, I can, I, that's all I really want is to sort of say I've left something behind. I'm one of three kids. I wanted a third kid and this was like the best I'm going to get. And it was helping a friend and so on. Um, my husband asked how she was doing a couple of weeks later. I said, oh, great. And by the way, this is the conversation we had. And he burst out laughing and said, of course you said no. And I said to him, I didn't even hesitate. I said, absolutely, mm-hmm. yes. And he said to me, well, how can you make a decision like that without talking to me? And I said, in the same way you made the decision about not having a third child without talking to me. And he sat down. Mm-hmm. He sat down quite harsh, hardly, hardly. He sat down quite hard and uh sort of contemplated things for a while and he said um i i guess we need to start talking about another baby and i said to him are you opening that door and there was a good few minutes of silence where i could see his eyes just staring off into the the the, <laughs> the distance and he said yeah yeah i'm opening that door so i said cool and i emailed everybody and i mean everybody <laughs> about our decision to have another child so that that door was kicked wide open because i said to him if you open that door even a crack 
Yep. Like I'm running through it like the Kool-Aid man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So uh, we, we began what was known as the Frederick Project. And the issue that we had was we had two kids in school. And having another child through surrogacy with kids in school is not easy because mm-hmm. you know it involves travel to the U.S. And we yes. can't just pull the kids out of school. You know, they're, they're both in, in proper full-time education. I'm, and you know, I will say also for those who don't know, U.K. school systems, the, the, the breaks, the holidays, they are so strange to when you mm-hmm. grow up in the American system. Yeah, it, it took me. It was very hard for me to wrap my head around how the break system works for those schools. They're essentially in year-round schooling too. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the longest break they get is five weeks in the summer. That's yep. it. Yep. Um, so we had approached my aunt, who's eight years older than me, Tish, and sort of said, "Look, would she be our primary support person? The kids adore her. You know, we she's the perfect choice for us." Mm-hmm. Um, and she agreed to all that. She was like, of course, she'll be, you know, the support and is very excited for us and all the rest of it. She went to see her GP to go get some skin tags removed. And she said, oh, by the way, while I'm here, I've got this hot lump right here, just, oh, just no. beneath my left breast. Mm. And the next day she was in the oncology department and she had a, a tumor on her liver. Now, she was mm. super healthy. If if you want to know just how interesting the religion choices are in my family, she was a Mormon, so she never drank. And, you know, the, I went with her to several of the appointments where the consultant oncologist was saying to her, are you, just be honest at this point, just be honest, are you an alcoholic? And she's going, I really am not. And I'm sat there going, she doesn't drink. She doesn't drink. She doesn't even have caffeine, for God's sake. Um and it took her in, in a very horrible way. I mean, she she was given, I think he said, five, four to five months if they didn't operate. Wow. Uh, they removed 80% of her liver, but they couldn't get all of the, oh. the, the tumor. And it was so fast growing. It was back within months. Um, she lasted 14 months in total. And wow. then she died. And And she was, you know, growing up, I was very, very close to her. And she was that, that affected me significantly more than my mother's passing, which is really interesting. Um, So we had to put a pause on the surrogacy journey, and we had just matched with a surrogate as well. Her name was uh, Rhonda, and she lived in Dallas, Texas. And Rhonda was amazing because she was like, not a problem. She's happy to wait for us to sort of sort sort our shit out, really. Um, So we delayed everything for over a year, and she waited for us. She did not want to match with someone else. And we had a great relationship with her, and she was just superb. We eventually got around to thawing a male embryo and doing a transfer on the 15th of November, 2019. And we had a lovely Christmas in 2019 with the kids. And for Christmas, we bought them a holiday to Disneyland Paris. Um, wow. they, had, they were Disney virgins. They'd never been to Disney. And I said to my husband, look, this is our last chance before baby Frederick arrives for us to take the older two to Disney for some proper fun, right? And while we were there, all excited because there's a baby on the way, and we, you know, I remember talking nonstop in Disney about Texas this summer, and when we go to Texas, and what are we going to do in Texas? And my son had researched about um, the theme parks in Texas and the rides he could ride. While we were at Disney, we started getting BBC news alerts about this virus in Italy. That's um, <laughs> it's just bringing it Rome to yeah. its knees, basically. 
uh, we got on the plane to come home. We're actually at the airport coming home. And my husband said to me, I feel like shit. I said to him, so do I, but I think I'm just tired. Oh, no. Yeah. The next morning, we both had full-blown COVID. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So we, we had it right at the beginning of the pandemic. Right at the beginning. We actually quarantined. We, we locked down ourselves. I mean, he went back to work after a week. He was still coughing and still felt terrible, but there was no guidelines then. Yeah, nobody um, knew. Yeah, no, wow. I was still doing the school run, hacking and yakking and coughing all over the mothers. Um, and then my daughter started a new continuous cough. There were no tests, but the guidelines were you have to quarantine for two weeks. So we did that. That would have been the end of March, uh, mid-March, I guess. So we actually started our own lockdown a week before the country lockdown. And then we had Frederick on the way. And in April, it was the 20-week scan. And the whole, oh. we're going to spend three weeks in Texas turned into, I don't even know how we're going to get to Texas. Because at this point, no. there were no flights. No. The borders are closed. Um, and that was quite scary. And I allowed myself no. one day to be a bit of an emotional wreck about it. And I spoke to my amazing colleague at work, Nancy, and I just said to her, Will you go fetch him for me? And she said, if I have to drive, I will drive. I will fetch him for you. Because I really did think, well, I'm going to have wow. to get help. Um, you know, how am I going to get there? Yeah. But Circle's legal team were incredible. And actually, not a single IP missed the birth. They all got in in time, including us. We, we, had, we went very early. Um, we actually went four and a half weeks before his due date. Um, my kids were off school. The schools were – well, they were in school because they're key work yeah. for children. Um, my husband's a doctor, so they were allowed to go. But, they, I mean, they were doing nothing at school. Nothing. Right. They were coloring in and building stuff. And um, So I spoke to the school and said, look, we, we need to go. And they said, just just go. Don't worry about it. Just leave. So we did. We we managed to get um, American Airlines flights, and it was empty. There was If there was 20 people on the plane, it was a lot. But we got to Dallas, and we were detained for several hours. <laughs> Because we were traveling against the orders of um, the United States government, it was it wasn't it was still under the Trump administration, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Last year, yeah, it would have been. Um, <clears throat> so it would have been President Trump's words, and she just said to us, "You you you shouldn't be here." And we said, "Well, we have a baby being born, and we had all our documentation, all the agreement for services, and everything." And the pre-birth order, everything was in order. My son, Sebastian, is a U.S. citizen. We were exempt from the travel ban because he's a U.S. citizen. Right. She still felt we had no right to travel. So she sent us to this little side room where we had to sit in this, you know, 120 degree heat with masks on. Right. Yeah, here we are again, this time trying to fetch him, not get home. Um, but it was, it was, you know, it was done. Well, after a couple of hours, this, this guy came over. We actually watched him pick them up and he was smoking hot. Both my husband and I sort of high-fiving each other going, oh, <laughs> this on. We, were, we were excited about our interview. We were ready for it. And he just came over with this big beaming smile and then just apologized profusely on behalf of what had happened and said, please just go in and good luck with your son and all the rest of it. Um, Aww. which is actually very lovely. We, the kids were amazing because at this point it must've been two in the morning for them, you know? Um, yeah. they, and they would, they were just amazing. They both fell asleep in the car, bless them, on the way to the hotel. We had to stay in a hotel for two weeks. We had to quarantine. But it was, it was so daft because the, the CDC were waiting at the top of the stairs as you got off the plane and they, they interview you, right? And they had a clipboard and pre vaccinations and early days of COVID. And, uh, he said to us, you need to quarantine for two weeks. And we said, yes, we understand that. That's why we've arrived early. 
And he said, um, but obviously with the children, they need some fresh air. So do feel free to take them out to the parks and a bit of recreation for them. And so I'm looking at Matt, so they're going, right, so not really a quarantine. And then he said, right. um, and, you know, and obviously you need some food. So if you need to go to a supermarket, feel free to go to a supermarket, just wear your mask and wash your hands. And again, we're kind of going, <laughs> oh, okay, so not really a quarantine, more of a just kind of take it easy. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, Best type of yeah, it was quite wow. So, yeah, so um, so it was fine. We we actually did. We we took. We were very nervous because, A, there was no travel insurance at that point for COVID, right? We were petrified if we got really sick in the United States, what that could cost. I mean, that's terrifying stuff. Um, right. And also we had a baby on the way. We didn't want to be sick. Um, and, yeah. you know, Texas was the – Texas and New York at that point were the, the sort of the red zones for COVID. Um, but Dallas was amazing. They, they, we never once felt threatened. In fact, we felt significantly safer there than we did in the UK as far as the guidelines were concerned and the, the mask wearing. And we, the UK didn't introduce masks until the 4th of July. Um, Up to that you point, you could to... just breathe on each other. <laughs> were Sorry. you able to be in the room for the birth with all the COVID guidelines? I was, yes. Um, and only me. So oh, wow. the, the hospital mm. had said um, they're only allowing the woman in labor, obviously, and one support person. And Rhonda wanted her sister there. And we were 100% fine with that. We're like, it's, you yeah. need to have your sister there because that's what's going to make you feel comfortable. Um, right. The hospital had said they would bring the baby to me in the, in the maternity ward once he was born. And I thought, well, I mean, I can live with that. It's not ideal, but I can, you know, so long as he's healthy, I'm, I'm good. But when I arrived at the hospital, there was this amazing maternity manager. Her name was Brittany. Um, and she was, Brittany was lived up to her name because Brittany was super excitable. And um, <laughs> I actually, actually wanted to go, it's Brittany, bitch. But I didn't, right? I didn't, I didn't make any <laughs> Brittany Spears songs. But she was actually really wonderful. And when I arrived, she had phoned me the day before and explained what I needed to do. And I got to the hospital because it was, a, it was a scheduled induction. Um, I got to the hospital, followed her guidelines to find her. So park in the orange zone, take the elevator to the third floor, you know, all that sort of practical information. Met up with Brittany and she took me up to my room on the maternity ward. Um, she introduced me to all the staff. She introduced me to a few of the, the, the women in there. So said, please don't be alarmed. This is Brett. He's having a baby through surrogacy. You know, it, she was lovely and, and everybody knew what was going on. Um, she then came into the room with me and said, closed the door behind her and said, right, do you feel you need to do skin to skin? So I said to her, I, you know, I'm British. I don't, don't do this to me. Just what do you mean by this? Please just, just come out with it. <laughs> she said to me, well, do you think it would be beneficial to you and the baby? And I said, well, yes, of course it would. But, you know, I can do it as soon as the baby's born. She's no, 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 no. Do you think it's beneficial from the moment <laughs> the baby is born that he is placed upon you? And she's speaking to me in such a way of, can you listen to what I'm saying? <laughs> So I said to her, oh, yes, Brittany, it's <laughs> the most important thing in the world. It's what I've dreamed of. And I worry that somebody might drop him. And then what would that mean for the hospital? <laughs> she, <laughs> like, she literally went, yes. <laughs> she skipped out the room. She came back a few minutes later saying, right, I spoke to the doctor. They're aware of the situation. Um, because you insist on doing skin to skin, she sent us a big beaming smile. Um, the doctor said you can come in for the last 10 minutes of the, of the birth. So I was there. I, I nice. got the phone call to come down now. Um, it took me by surprise because there was nothing happening at 6.30. Nothing happening at 7.30. Very little at 8.30. But at 9.15, I had to get down there. Uh, she went from <laughs> literally four centimeters to 10 centimeters in minutes, right? 
Wow. Um, and I raced down there, had to have a surgical mask on, that sort of stuff. And I watched him being born. And in fact, my family watched him being born. I, I, Rhonda was oh. perfectly fine for me to FaceTime the birth. She said, please don't record it. And I'm like, well, we really don't want to record yeah. this. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 we're just so thankful to be seeing it. Um, so I had my first, well, actually had, yeah, um, Rhonda's sister held the phone. And so filming, you know, showing the Matthew and the kids, everything back at the Airbnb. Um, what's hilarious is my daughter has always maintained she's going to have six children. After she witnessed the birth of her brother, she's decided she's having six kids through adoption. Yeah. <laughs> because she is not going through that. <laughs> I think it really has really made her think. Um, but yeah, they all got to watch it. I cut his umbilical cord. They put him straight on me for the skin to skin, which, to be honest, I was a little apprehensive of. I didn't know what to expect from that. Uh, I've seen all the photos online, all the dads with the babies covered in cottage cheese glued to their chests. And I'm looking at this thinking, oh, I don't know if this is me. Um, and my first thoughts when, you know, the doctor said, right, take your shirt off was, oh, I'm going to get my fat out in front of everybody. And then I looked over, <laughs> you know, Rhonda's vagina on display and there's blood and gore everywhere. And I'm thinking, well, <laughs> what's a bit of fat between friends? Um, I had this baby put on me and he gazed at me for 90 minutes. That little boy just, he just breathed and looked at me mm. and just blinked every so often. And I fell head over heels in love with him, just like I did with all my other kids. I had to stay in the hospital for two days. Matt and the kids couldn't meet him until I was released. And that was that was a bit shitty that they couldn't see him. He was two days old when they met him. But, yeah, yeah it's fine. Uh, they picked me up. We went back home to the Airbnb. And we were in the U.S. then for three weeks before we then returned to the U.K. Yeah. As a family of five. And it's fascinating oh. because I was walking and pushing Frederick. He was he would have been two months old if that. And the older two kids were running ahead. We were on a walk. And my husband said to me, do you feel differently about Frederick to the other kids? And I, I actually really had to reflect on myself for a while, thinking, do I? And I said to him, I, I actually don't. I don't feel differently between them and Frederick. But I feel different. I feel almost like I'm now complete. That is hmm. my box ticked. Interesting. That that empty puzzle piece in my in my heart has now been filled. But I don't love Frederick more than the other two at all. Right. Um, in fact, most gay dads will talk about how the non-bio child bonds better with the non-bio dad. Ah, <laughs> Matthew's hellbent. He's going to have Frederick this time round because um, Sebastian, Sebastian and I are definitely best pals. Definitely. So that is my story, ladies. I, I, Frederick is now 15 months old. Um, I, there, is, there, there is a bit of a part two, I suppose, in the sense that what the future holds. Um, I have a single lady living in or near Boca Raton, Florida, who is having one of my embryos. And she has been matched with her surrogate. And they're hoping for a transfer later this month. Oh, wow. Which is super exciting. So I've done embryo donation. It's really exciting. It'll be a known donor to the child and everything. Um, it's the same month that Frederick was transferred. Oh, that's so nice. she will hopefully have a late July, early August baby as well. And she's amazing. I got to meet her while we were all together in Orlando. She drove up. We had lunch together. Um, she's amazing, amazing lady. She's originally from that's Australia. Awesome. She's a cancer survivor. Um, and she's so excited to be a mum. And I'm so excited that she can have one of my great embryos. I've got thirteen. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Eight boys and five girls left. Oh, my goodness. That is that is an incredible, I mean, that's a whole another tangent we can go on about embryo donation and all kinds <laughs> yeah, of things quite. like that. But We'll have to right. do a part two for your 13 additional children. And right? Stories. <laughs> now, I do, I, I've kind of given you quite an overview of everything, I suppose. I mean, you know, there was, yes. I, I, can, I, can, I can talk for England, I think you can probably tell that. Um, but I just, I just feel I have actually had a very interesting, eventful life. And when I reflect back on, you know, having everything in Zimbabwe. I mean, my parents were wealthy. Um, we had farms, we employed people and they lost everything and we were absolutely dirt poor. I remember my mother sharing out tins of beans for us to eat. We were that poor. Um, and then having all of what happened to me as a Jehovah's Witness, not completing my education to actually be where I am now, I find quite startling and I don't know how I did it sometimes, you know, um, well, I suppose it is amazing, but I still don't quite understand how, really. And and I I also think I'm I'm just me. I just get on with things. I suppose I I don't often. It's only when I'm doing podcasts and stuff like this where I'm asked the questions. Or, for example, when we were in Florida, I had to write a bit of my story. Do I actually then reflect on? who I am and where I came from, so to speak. Yeah. But, yeah there you go. Well, we are so grateful for me. you to share this. And um, I, th- I feel like there might be a part two sometime, but um, but we appreciate you sharing all of this on this podcast and to keeping in touch. Absolute pleasure. You're most welcome, honestly. Thanks again to Brett Griffin Young. And I love that we left kind of with a cliffhanger. So maybe there'll be more episodes to come of those future stories. Right. So if people want to hear possible updates, they should come check us out on our new Facebook group, right? Uh, maybe, may, maybe, who knows? If we know information, we could drop it before then. <laughs> I can't make any promises, but it might be the best way to try to find out new, new and breaking information about any of our podcast guests. A huge, huge thank you, as always, to all of you who have left us reviews on iTunes. We always appreciate those. So even if you don't want to join us on Facebook, which, again, I know is totally an outdated place to be. I am so old. Apparently, that is where I go is Facebook, but not everybody else does. Um, you can leave us a phone message because that is even... Is. Why would we Phone switch? messages are Grandma's even less Instagram. outdated. Yeah, no, the, the phone, phone message is even less outdated. Come on, you know. You can leave us a phone message at 303-997-1903. Does anybody actually pick up the phone and make phone calls anymore? I mean, that's that's a real question. Uh, when people call me, I try to screen it. Now I've, I've said too much. Right? right? Yeah. So people are used to leaving messages, at least. So you can leave us a message, and we are happy to listen to them. Um, as always, huge thank you to our team, to Amanda, to Tyler, to Melissa, And of course, to Chris at Work at Bird Studios. We really appreciate all of them. And we appreciate you for listening and being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.